Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Welcome back to our conclusion of our two-parter, Tupac and Biggie. Mm-hmm. What a ride. It is astounding. This case, the amount to it, the heft, how much I didn't know when I thought I did know. <laughs> totally. Totally. And I mean, I think we talked a little bit last time about how much the media played a part in this. And I think everyone was kind of coming together to be like, oh, just a little gangster thing. Don't don't need to bother your pretty little head with this one. Unimportant, you know, which is crazy. Even if they weren't kind of among the brightest stars of their generation, like, is just crazy. They were bright, bright, bright stars. Yeah. I also didn't know, like, my, I was fascinated by my side of the research as well, because, of course, I know the hits. I know, right, like, right. the broad strokes of the the legacy, but the level of success in so few years is I unbelievable. I know, I know. Yeah, I kept, I mean, you know, I didn't look into the same part that you did, but as I was looking at the sequence of their lives, it's like, they just went totally supernova like it almost they almost made it seem effortless like oh like it's hard you know anyone can just go and be a huge rapper (laughs) yeah and beyond rap yeah it's just wow i can't wait to hear everything that you dug up but so normally we jump right in but we have a little bit of housekeeping (laughs) Speaking of going supernova just like practically overnight, we have a new five-star review. Woo! <laughs> and as we always promise, we are going to read it on air. Bam. Just like that. So we have a user who's called I Want to Be Their Friend. Like that's their username. And I'm just going to assume that's about us and not <laughs> they didn't make that username for someone else that they were reviewing i'm taking that as being about us i hate that i never even considered that it wasn't about us (laughs) (laughs) narcissism no you just have a healthy self-esteem there's nothing wrong with that at all (laughs) well i want to be their friend has this to say about most foul pod so the headline andrew are you ready for this the headline is hammond mcdaniel for president what? I mean, at this point, we could do a better job than all of <laughs> all U.S. politicians, I think. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a high bar. Agreed. I agree. I agree. And low bars are kind of our thing, so I'm fine with that. So I want to be their friend says, I hate running because I get so bored that I cannot stand spending my time that way. But Most Foul is so great that I have listened to many episodes twice while logging miles. The banter between Kirsten and Andrew is perfect. Whether it's that way naturally or is cut that way doesn't matter. But their realistic take on things, their insistence on not blaming the victim, but also stating the facts, and their ability to put you into the context and culture of the time is phenomenal. 
<sighs> I can't. Like, I can't. It's. <laughs> I'm going to cry. But there's more. There's more. This is like the longest love letter anyone's ever written to me and like i i'm eating it up <laughs> also references to such randomness as mariah's not remembering britney being married for two days and things like that are all things that we are not normally getting from true crime yes <laughs> true crime is a passion of so many of us and kirsten and andrew point out that it is not weird or new which is so true Keep it up, team, and let me know if you need help on the campaign trail or on any trial of any kind. Here is a go at the slogan for your campaign trial. Get it? Yes. <laughs> Solving healthcare and murder, which is also healthcare for America. <laughs> love it. Love it. Thank you. I don't. <laughs> I know. I don't even know what to say. And, like, yeah. I don't even know what to say, but I feel so seen because so many of the things that this person mentions in the review are things that we try really hard to do. I'm like really flabbergasted because I, I don't know that anyone said anything that nice about me. <laughs> no one's ever said anything this nice about me except maybe my mom. <laughs> so whoever you are, you have made our day. You have made our day and... If we ever go on a campaign trail or trial, we want you by our side. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you. So now to our other listeners, you're going to have to really, you know, go far to top this one. But we believe in you. We believe <laughs> that you can flatter our egos even more. But if you just want to tell us a joke, a story, <laughs> as long as there's five stars, we'll read it. <laughs> totally. I mean, you could even come in and just give us five stars and not write anything. We can't read about you, but it will help the algorithm, which will spread the good news of Most Foul Pod far and wide. And help other people who also don't like running. <laughs> <laughs> or like to hear about... Britney's first marriage mixed in with her true crime. I just, uh, you said it. I feel so seen. I mean, <laughs> true crime and knowing and caring about Mariah pretending not to know J-Lo. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's so much of who I am. <laughs> uh, it was a great American moment. <sighs> well, thank you again. Yes. And we're going to try to live up to what you say about us every every week starting with this week today i get the chance to talk about i mean really the astounding careers and the cultural impact of two of hip-hop's most influential rappers yeah so again obviously tupac shakur and biggie smalls mm -hmm. so sort of in a structural way i'm going to talk through the art they created how their murders forever impacted their legacies and the work, art, and media that they inspired. Mm -hmm. So this was a no particular order, but I'm also going to start with Tupac. Mm -hmm. I, I was just personally more connected to his music and his poetry, kind of as a culture consumer myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Listener, you can't see. Kirsten, you also can't see because of blur on the Zoom. No, I see it, yeah. I've had a, Tupac's book of poetry for a very long time and it was yeah. very influential in my own creative growth amazing 
so it's clear that he's one of the most influential rappers of all time. Mm-hmm. He's a pillar of modern hip hop and a pop culture titan. Mm-hmm. His music, as you said in the last episode, it addressed social issues plaguing inner cities. And in spite of his own crimes, his own mm-hmm. issues, he's considered a symbol of activism against inequality. Mm-hmm. He sold more than 75 million albums. Oh my God. Many, many of which were after he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even in death, Tupac remains a transcendental rap figure. All music's Stephen Thomas Irwin describes Tupac as the unlikely martyr of gangster rap. Mm. He was described as one of the top two American rappers in the 90s, along with Snoop Dogg. So I'm guessing that was like a West Coast. uh, Mm, Yeah, interesting. So interesting. The online rap magazine All Hip Hop held a 2007 roundtable at which New York rapper Cormega said, quote, Biggie ran New York. Pac ran America, end quote. Mm. Mm-hmm. In 2010, Rolling Stone placed Tupac at number 86 on their list of 100 greatest artists of all time. Mm-hmm. And his entry in that Rolling Stone piece was written by 50 Cent. And in that, he wrote, quote, Every rapper who grew up in the 90s owes something to Tupac. He didn't sound like anyone who came before him, end quote. Yeah. So following that same trend, I found music journalist Chuck Phillips wrote that Tupac, quote, helped elevate rap from a crude street fad to a complex art form, setting the stage for the current global hip hop phenomenon. The slang silenced one of modern music's most eloquent voices, a ghetto poet whose tales of urban alienation captivated young people of all races and backgrounds, end quote. Mm, Yeah. His influence is unbelievable. In 2014, BET explained, quote, his confounding mixture of ladies' man, thug, revolutionary, and poet has forever altered our perception of what a rapper should look like, sound like, and act like. Mm-hmm. In 50 Cent, Ja Rule, Lil Wayne, newcomers like Freddie Gibbs, and even his friend-turned-rival Biggie, it's easy to see that Pac is the most copied MC of all time. There are murals bearing his likeness in New York, Brazil, Sierra Leone, Bulgaria, and countless other places. He even has statues in Atlanta and Germany. Quite simply, no other rapper has captured the world's attention the way Tupac did and still does. End quote. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So it's just mega stardom. Yeah. And it goes beyond stardom. I mean, symbols. I I get into this with Biggie as well. They're like, it's not just the music and the career. It's them as people. Tupac kind of takes on this martyr persona Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just symbols for so many people. Well, and he had a knack for, you know, speaking to the lived reality of so many people in his own community, but then he also had a way of taking that same kind of information and understanding and translating it in just such a way that people from other backgrounds were able to attach on to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So now I want to get into specific pieces of culture. Mm-hmm. And I'll start with his works that were released both before and after his death, and then get into the culture that was created about him, starting with the music career. (laughs) So as you mentioned last week, he began recording music under the stage name MC New York in 1989. 
again, 89. Like we are talking such a short amount of time from yeah. anonymity to superstardom. Yeah. So that same year, he began attending the poetry class of Leela Steinberg, who soon became his manager and helped him get signed with Atron Gregory, uh-huh. who, as you mentioned, the manager of Digital Underground. So it was in 91 that he debuted under the stage name Tupac, like number two, capital P, A-C. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with Tupac, his name. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was working with Digital Underground under Interscope Records, and their song was featured on the soundtrack of one of the worst and most bizarre movies I have ever seen, <laughs> which is Nothing But Trouble, <laughs> starring mm. Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Chevy Chase, and Demi Moore. Mm. Quick tangent, and Roger, if you're listening, <laughs> I'll never forget this fucked up movie, and I'm sure you won't either. <laughs> we watched it together as, like, teens. <laughs> yeah. Dan Aykroyd literally has... a uh, like prosthetic head of a penis as a nose at different points throughout the movie and is the most disgusting character (laughs) I have ever seen. And there's all this disgusting food and he's like hot dog type food. And he's just like, want some dogs (laughs) with old man makeup and penis nose. It is (laughs) It will haunt me until the day that I die. I think it might haunt me, and I haven't even seen it. <laughs> Whew. So anyway, <laughs> shifting back to Tupac. Uh, I hate that it was even connected to that movie. <laughs> but his debut album, Tupacalypse Now, was released mm-hmm. in November 1991. Prominent rappers like Nas, Eminem, Game, they all cite this album as an inspiration. Mm-hmm. It sold nearly yeah. a million copies, was number three on the U.S. top R&B hip-hop albums chart, which, again, this is a debut. Right. A million copies of your debut. That's. And, I mean, this is a time before hip-hop had really gone mainstream. Yeah. And so some of the success was partially due to controversy, when then U.S. Vice President Dan Quayle said, quote, there's no reason for a record like this to be released. It has no place in our society, end quote. Speaking of penis head. So clearly, fuck him, fuck racist, fuck fascist, and fuck conservatives who act like this. (laughs) Uh. And Tupac even eloquently responded to that criticism saying, quote, I just wanted to rap about things that affected young black males. When I said that, I didn't know that I was going to tie myself down to just take all the blunts and hits for all of the young black males to be the media's kicking post for young black males, end quote. And of course he was. Of course that's, ugh, fucking racist. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) composing. Racist shit gibbons. (sighs) But then his second album was released, and it it was another critical and commercial jump. Mm -hmm. It sold almost 1.4 million copies, 
charted at number four on the R&B and hip hop chart. And this one was number 24 on the Billboard Top 200. Which is nuts. I mean, again, like at this point, it's still new. I mean, this is like in the Yo! MTV raps, Mm -hmm. you know, still, yeah. Totally. In 93, Tupac formed the group Thug Life, which released its only album, Thug Life Volume 1 in 1994 Mm -hmm. this one came in at number six on the r&b and hip-hop charts and 42 on the top 200 and sold Mm -hmm. over half a million copies so again even a side project yeah very successful and still only five years into this professionally Mm -hmm. and (laughs) it's crazy this is the same time frame that the notorious big and tupac met began their friendship So that's kind of the zone we're talking about in terms of his music career and then Biggie coming into his life. Mm -hmm. They'd performed together when Tupac was in New York or Biggie was in L.A. They recorded the songs Running from the Police and House of Pain together. And then, of course, the falling out happened, which you discussed last episode uh, after the shooting at Quad Studios. Mm -hmm. And that was in 94. So then Tupac's third solo album, Me Against the World, was released while he was incarcerated in 95. Mm -hmm. So this album is really hailed as his magnum opus and commonly ranks among the greatest and most influential rap albums. It debuted at number one on the Billboard Top Uh 200, (laughs) sold 240,000 copies in the first week, which at that time in 95, it set the record for highest first week sales for a solo male rapper. Wow. So the top of the game. Yeah. It went on to sell over 3 million copies in the U.S. That's wild. He followed it up in 96 with the album All Eyes on Me. And it was rap's first ever double album. Mm-hmm. Meaning, two, so it's essentially two albums, like double, yes. But it also counts as two of the albums in his three album record deal. Got so it. one release still counts as two albums. It was his second number one on the uh, Billboard Top 200. Wow. And it, it was certified Diamond. It went on to sell over 5 million copies, which wow. Diamond is traditionally 10 million, but because it's a double album and costs more money, um, it, it's only a 5 million threshold to get to Diamond. Got it. And again, I mean, we've said this in previous episodes, but this is a time when... You couldn't just open your laptop and hit a button and have the album. You had to get off your ass, go to the store, pay for it, bring it back, put it in your whatever, and listen to it that way. Yeah. This commercial success, unbelievable. Yeah. At the time of his murder, his fifth and final solo album was already finished. Mm-hmm. The Don Caluminati, The Seven Day Theory. And... This was written under the stage name, written and performed under the stage name Machiavelli. Mm -hmm. It was recorded in one week in August of 96, and two months after his death, it was released. Wow. The lyrics were written and recorded over like a three-day period, and mixing took another four days. It was like very fast. So Mm -hmm. I feel like, again, making money after someone's death, I think this was purposefully pushed fast to um to capitalize on the publicity of his death i i can't think of a better phrase but i'm sure one exists yeah so in 2005 
MTV ranked this album among hip hop's greatest albums ever. And by 2006, they ranked it a classic album. Mm-hmm. It's poignant examination of hurt and rage, contemplation, vendetta. Like these themes just resonate so hard. Yeah. According to George Papa G. Price, Death Row Records' then director of public relations, the album was meant to be underground and was not intended for release before Tupac's murder. Hmm. And because it, it wasn't under his name, like, I'm sure right. there was a whole strategy to it. But then again, mm-hmm. after his death, they like rushed it out. Right. So interesting. Again, number one on the top 200, number one on the R&B hip hop chart. It was the second highest debut week sales of any album that year. It sold wow. over 4 million copies. And then it just continues in a way that I have mixed feelings about the posthumous Mm -hmm. releases and who gets the money and where does that all go? But his sixth album, Are You Still Down? Remember Me was released in 97. And this was the first album to be released without his creative input. Mm. And of course he was like prolific. So it it contains previously unreleased material from earlier recordings. Mm -hmm. Again, this album topped the charts and it topped the R&B hip hop chart for three weeks. This went on to sell 4 million copies in its first month. What? Unbelievable. Wow. So then next we have the release of his double disc greatest hits album. And that was in 98. Uh-huh. It featured 21 of his tracks as well as four previously unreleased songs one of which earned him his first and only posthumous Grammy Award nomination for Best Rap Solo Performance. Which is kind of crazy to think that after all of that success, that was his first Grammy nomination. Racism. Yeah. I mean, who even knows if Grammys had rap categories? Who even knows? Google. Like, I I could know. (laughs) But But yeah, I mean, it speaks to it still emerging as a mainstream Mm -hmm. genre. Yeah, and it was certified diamond in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with all of the sales of the Greatest Hits record, it remains the best-selling rap greatest hit album of all time. Mm -hmm. And it's the 20th best-selling rap album of all time. Holy shit. Yeah. So the next album, Still I Rise, was released the next year in 1999. It was a Mm -hmm. collaboration album that featured... Tupac and the group The Outlaws. And so it was some previously unreleased and some remixed material. Mm-hmm. This one debuted at number seven on the top 200 and sold over a million copies. Mm-hmm. 2001, his seventh album, Until the End of Time, was released. And this featured material that was recorded from 95 to 96. Mm-hmm. It debuted yeah. at number one and has been certified quadruple platinum. So four million. Wow. Mm-hmm. And this one, BET placed uh, at number three on their list of the best 25 posthumous albums of all time. Hmm. Wow. So then 2002, his album Better Days was released. Again, previously unreleased materials and remixes. It debuted at number five and has sold over three million. His ninth album, Loyal to the Game. I had no <laughs> idea. I had no idea. Wow. It, it un, unfathomable kind of yeah yeah the majority of his albums were released after he died 
so wild. But his ninth album, Loyal to the Game, was produced by Eminem and consists of remixes of previously unreleased music. Um, And that came out in 2004 and sold over a million. So during an interview with MTV, Eminem said that he was so moved by Tupac's life and work that he wrote a letter to Afeni, Tupac's mom, asking Mm -hmm. her to consider letting him produce his next album, which she agreed. And Mm -hmm. she allowed Eminem to produce three songs for the soundtrack to um, the documentary about Tupac, Tupac Resurrection, as well as Mm -hmm. the entirety of this ninth album. Wow. And his last posthumous album, Pac's Life, was released in 2006. It was supposed to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of his murder, and it debuted Mm -hmm. at number nine on the top 200. Wow. So clearly we couldn't get enough so much and i mean he produced so much yes and then we get into darker territory in my opinion in mm-hmm. 2012 at the coachella music festival rapper snoop dogg and dr dre joined a tupac hologram and performed his songs hail mary and two of america's most wanted and they discussed mm. doing a tour of that but mm-hmm. dr dre refused which I think was a good choice. Yeah. It's a little bit too, like, plot of Black Mirror to me. Like, yeah. I I don't like the idea of using technology to keep making money off of dead people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are people who disagree. Well, I'm sure there are capitalists who disagree, but I'm sure there are fans who disagree as well. But yeah. I just imagine Hollywood and the music industry, they've got like nefarious plans with tech. I mean, we already see it in Disney and Star Wars. They've done it a few times of putting dead people in their movies. And it's like, they didn't consent. I know you own the character, but it's like, we're not that far off from like, who are you even paying? (laughs) Right. I know. I know. So anyway, I won't rant more about that but no but it is it's a yeah it just feels wrong yeah and so unbelievable success and then that's not even factoring in his acting so of course the first cameo in that horrific movie (laughs) nothing but trouble we don't have to count that one in 92 he starred in the movie juice where he plays the fictional Roland Bishop, a militant and haunting individual. Rolling Stone's Peter Travers called him the film's most magnetic figure. In 93, he starred alongside Janet Jackson in John Singleton's romance, uh, Poetic Justice. Mm -hmm. He played a a gangster in the movie Above the Rim from 94. And then he had already filmed three other movies that were released after his death. Mm. So Bullet came out in 96, and then gridlocked and gang related both came out in 97 so then kind of moving over to literature the work that he created the rose that grew from concrete is a collection of poetry that he wrote between 89 and 91 Mm -hmm. which i have right next to me love that book (laughs) highly recommend but it was published posthumously in 1999 and the preface was written by his mom Mm. So if you'll indulge me, I want to read the poem that the book is named after. Mm -hmm. It's very short. Quote, did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete, proving nature's law is wrong? 
it learned to walk without having feet. Funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete when no one else ever cared. End quote. Mm. Do you think that he knew he was talking about himself? I think himself, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was talking about the success and the resilience of the black community. Mm. Mm. It's so good. If you don't have it, check it out at the library, pick up a copy. Mm -hmm. It's very good. So that is a ton, but that is a, a look at the media he created or like his works. Mm-hmm. So now transitioning into media about Tupac, this book of poetry was then turned into an album with the same name that features celebrities reading his poetry and writings. So it's like a traditional spoken word album. Oh, interesting. And that one reached 28 on the R&B hip hop chart and 89 on the top 200. Oh, wow. Which is pretty high in my opinion. (laughs) For spoken word, yeah. Yeah, not going too deep into it, but there have been 17 documentaries made about Tupac that I could find, Mm -hmm. including the Academy Award nominated Tupac Resurrection in 2003. Mm -hmm. He's also been portrayed in film in five movies. Oh, interesting. So first in 2001's Too Legit, the MC Hammer story. Hmm. And in that, he was played by Lamont Bentley. Okay. Then 2009, there was Notorious, which about Biggie. And Mm -hmm. he was played by Anthony Mackie. Next was the incredibly successful Straight Outta Compton, Mm -hmm. where he was played by Mark Rose and... This movie made over $200 million. It was chosen by the National Board of Review as one of the top 10 films of 2015. uh, And it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Oh, wow. Then in 2016, he was played by Adrian Arthur in the film Surviving Compton, Dre, Suge, and Michelle. Mm -hmm. And lastly, he was played by Demetrius Ship Jr. in 2017 in the biographical film all Eyes on Me, which was named for Tupac's album. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And then a quick jaunt over to the world of theater. In 2014, uh-huh. the play Holler If You Hear Me, based on his lyrics, was on Broadway. Fascinating. Unfortunately, it was one of Broadway's worst-selling musicals. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well... I'm waiting, and if you come to it, tell me. But as part of my research, I watched something um, that I had never heard of, and I found it when I was searching for kind of stuff to watch. But it was a series, Unsolved, The Murders of Tupac and the Notorious B.I.G. I started watching it, and it's good. At first, I thought it was a documentary, and I started watching, and then – it's it's not. It's a fictionalization. Oh. Fictionalization. I bet I put it in with the documentaries, which I didn't list I didn't... out. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, it kind of sounds like a documentary, right? But I started watching it, and then it's not a documentary. It's a fictionalization. But also there's, like, a lot of – I mean, not A-list is too strong, but well-known people in it, and it's pretty good. Where, so, where is it? 
So you can watch it on Netflix. And I'm about halfway through. And the actor who plays, I mean, so it's about both. Mm -hmm. And the actor who plays Tupac is, I mean, for a while, I'm, I'm like, I mean, I know it's not him because, but for a couple of moments, you're like, is this footage of him Mm -hmm. that they're cutting in? I mean, he just looks so much like him. And the guy who plays Biggie also, I mean, it's not quite as uncanny, but really looks like him. And Josh Duhamel plays the pool character, the Mm -hmm. investigator that I talked about. And there's just like a bunch of you'll as you're watching the first episode, you'll be like, oh, that guy. Oh, that guy. Oh, yeah, that guy. But yeah, I just thought I would toss that out there as, you know, if you're interested, like check it out because it's pretty good and it's on Netflix. Oh, that's a good doc. Or, <laughs> that's a good recommendation. Yeah. Sorry to mess up your flow. Oh, no. I was just like, going to jump in, but. Are you going to mention it? I'm not sure. Well, and there's a good chance I do mention it in the Biggie section and don't remember, but I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I saw that in a list of documentaries and assumed it was. Yeah. Okay. So cut it if it comes up later. But jumping back in, so it's a place we don't always go, mm-hmm. but heading into the classroom. Mm. In 1997, University of California, Berkeley offered a course led by a student titled History 98, Poetry and History of Tupac Shakur. Mm. In 2003, Harvard University co-sponsored the symposium All Eyes on Me, Tupac Shakur, and the Search for the Modern Folk Hero. Interesting. And the papers there, it covered a wide range of his influence from entertainment to sociology. Mm -hmm. And tracing Tupac's, like, mythical status, and kind of similarly in this modern folk hero narrative music scholar Emmett Price was the one who called Tupac a black folk hero. Mm, So again, it's really beyond music, beyond entertainment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then to finish out our look at Tupac's legacy and impact on culture, I'll quickly go through some of just his awards and honors. So 2002, he was inducted into the Hip Hop Hall of Fame. 2004, he was among the honorees at the first ever hip hop honors. Mm -hmm. And this is just an interesting one. In 2006, his friend and classmate, when they were younger, Jada Pinkett Smith donated a million dollars to their high school, the Baltimore School for the Arts, and named the new theater Mm -hmm. in his honor. Oh, wow. In 2010, the Library of Congress added his song, Dear Mama, to the National Recording Registry. And that was Mm -hmm. the third rap song ever. Wow. Again, white people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In 2015, the Grammy Museum opened an exhibition dedicated to him. In his first year of eligibility, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017. Yeah. Uh, In January of 2022, so, you know, not that long ago. like super recent uh the exhibition tupac shakur wake me when i'm free opened at the canvas at la live in los angeles and then most recently in march one of his earliest pieces of writing an unpublished booklet of haiku poetry was auctioned by sotheby's and it was expected to get between two and three hundred thousand dollars and it went a little over at like three hundred and two thousand 
Wow. So that's amazing. He wrote and illustrated this booklet when he was 11. Oh my God. And he made it for Jamal Joseph and three other Black Panther Party members while they were incarcerated. Wow. So even at that age, his writing dealt with the themes such as Black liberation, mass incarceration, race, masculinity. The booklet features a self-portrait of him sleeping with a pen in his hand, dreaming of the Black Panthers being freed from prison, and signed with a heart in the phrase, Tupac Shakur, future freedom fighter. Wow. And that friends is a look at Tupac's incredible career and impact on pop culture much like our discussion in the Selena episode it's impossible to know what heights he could have achieved if he hadn't been killed yeah and his legacy certainly continues my gosh I'm getting waves of like tingles do you get that when usually it's music but every once in a while you you say a line and I just get a wave of like goosebumps and it's just like a wow, like yeah. I love doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I didn't use the word in my part last week, but I think it applies. I mean, I think he was brilliant, and he was able to do so much in spite of all of the adversity that he faced from basically the very, very beginning of his life. One hundred percent. And it it. Yeah, I mean, the Selena episode, just same, that feeling of such lost, you know, lost opportunity, lost, you know, what was lost to human civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now transitioning over to Biggie, I I mean, there was a ton, tons I didn't know about Tupac, but I knew mm-hmm. less about Biggie. So this was mm-hmm. a, a deeper exploration for me. Mm-hmm. And I cannot believe how successful he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm going to run through it in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Much like Tupac, Biggie is one of the leading figures in hip-hop. Uh, Billboard named him the greatest rapper of all time. Mm-hmm. The Source also named him the greatest rapper of all time in its 150th issue. MTV ranked him third on their list of greatest MCs of all time and Mm -hmm. specifically called out that he was possibly the most skillful ever on the mic. Wow. In 2020, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He became known kind of for a really distinctive laid-back delivery that offset the lyrics that were often really grim. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And his music was semi-autobiographical, and he'd spent a lot of time talking about hardship and criminality, uh, but also, like, fun and debauchery and celebration. Mm-hmm. So in a relatively short amount of time, he sold 30 million albums. That's crazy. And again, like, Tupac, he forever changed the face of rap and hip-hop, and his influence is all through the genre. Mm-hmm. He began rapping as a teenager, entertaining people on the streets, and performed with local groups, the Old Gold Brothers, as well as the Techniques. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned last week, his earliest stage name was MC C. West. Mm-hmm. So then after his stint in jail in North Carolina, he released his demo, Microphone Murder, under the name Biggie Smalls. So a local DJ who went by Mr. C., Uh, who was part of Big Daddy Kane and Juice Crew, discovered and promoted Biggie's mixtape, which is how it was heard by 
the source, which is uh, Rap Magazine, it, how it was heard by their editor. And so they had a column in the magazine, Unsigned Hype, which was dedicated to airing, you know, up-and-coming, promising rappers. And they featured Biggie, which was like a real elevation. And then that elevation through the magazine is how Sean Puffy, at the time, Combs, Mm -hmm. you know, we said it last week, but Diddy, P. Diddy, you know, (laughs) whichever name. That's how he found it because of that write up mm-hmm. in the magazine. And as you mentioned, he was the A&R, he was with the A&R department of Uptown Records and he arranged to meet Biggie. Mm-hmm. And you know, really quickly signed Biggie into Uptown. Within a year though, Uptown fired Diddy, who launched his own Bad Boy Records and that instantly became Biggie's new label. Mhm. So, he's up and coming and it it's going to be wild how fast this happens. <laughs> so he gets a lot of exposure when Diddy puts him on a remix of Mary J. Blige's Real Love. Which, I mean, in terms of crossover success, that song, I mean, you still hear it today all the time. Yes. There couldn't have been a better song for him to be on, yeah. Yeah, and it was, this is the same time period where he officially changed from Biggie Smalls to the Notorious B.I.G., Mm-hmm. And same relative time frame that he met and befriended Tupac. Mm-hmm. So that was a success. So like, let's repeat it. So then he's on another Mary J. Blige remix. This one for what's the four one one. And so his first solo track was released in April of ninety four, and that was party and bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that was from the movie Who's the Man? It was a soundtrack song. Got it. So then in July, he appeared alongside LL Cool J and Buster Rhymes on a remix of his own label mate, Craig Mack's Flava in Your Ear. And this remix mm-hmm. reached number nine on the Billboard Hot 100. Wow. So really starting to blow up at this point. So yeah, like three years. Really wild. <laughs> <laughs> so then in 94, he married R&B singer Faith Evans. Mm-hmm. Just incidentally, whom he met eight days prior to that. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been a whirlwind moment. Yeah, yeah. And so they get married. And then just five days later, he had his first pop chart success as a solo artist with double A-side, Juicy and Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And that reached number 27 and was the lead single to his debut album, Ready to Die, which mm-hmm. was released in September of that year. That album, his first album, <laughs> uh, <laughs> reached 13 on the top 200 and sold over 6 million copies. Wow. So huge. <laughs> huge, huge, huge. Of course, it has the iconic Big Papa, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was a hit on multiple charts. It peaked at number six on the Hot 100 and was nominated for a Grammy for Best Rap Solo Performance at the 96 Grammy Awards. Wow. The album was pretty significant in revitalizing the East Coast hip-hop scene, uh, like you mentioned, amid West Coast hip-hop's commercial dominance. Mm -hmm. It's been ranked by many critics as one of the greatest hip-hop albums as well as one of the greatest albums of all time. Wow. 
2020, the album was ranked 22nd on Rolling Stone's updated list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Um, and it was ranked number one on their list of the 200 greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Wow. So, incredible debut. Yeah. So then, in 95, he was working with Michael Jackson on the song This Time Around. So, regardless about Michael and his legacy today, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it shows (laughs) how big Biggie was. Yeah. I mean, Michael Jackson didn't just work with anybody. Right, right. Uh, That same year, his protege group, Junior Mafia, which stood for Junior Masters at Finding Intelligent Attitudes. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. did not know that. (laughs) They released their debut album, Conspiracy, and this group consisted of his friends from childhood and included Little Kim, who, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. went on to have a huge solo career. Yeah. So their record went gold, and its singles, Players Anthem and Get Money, both featured... Biggie went to gold and platinum, respectively. Mm-hmm. So, again, directly impacting and influencing the careers of many prominent people. Yeah. So he continued working with R&B artists as well. Uh, the group 112 on the song Only You, the group Total on Can't You See, and both of those were top 20 hits. Yeah. By the end of the year, Biggie was the top-selling male solo artist and rapper on the U.S. pop and R&B charts. Which is incredible when you think about it. Yeah, Uh, unbelievable. I knew. (laughs) I mean, it took us longer to come up with the idea for the podcast and make it than it did for him to be, like, sitting in algebra class somewhere and then be the top (laughs) male performer. (laughs) I never understood how commercially successful he was yeah yeah in 1995 he appeared on the cover of the source with the caption the king of new york takes over and that's Mm -hmm. the like iconic him with the crown yeah um which itself uh, was a reference to his alias frank white which was based on a character from the 1990 film king of new york Mm mm-hmm at the Source Awards in 95, he was named Best New Artist, Lyricist of the Year, Live Performer of the Year, and Best Album of the Year. Wow. Uh, at the Billboard's Awards, he won Rap Artist of the Year. So, mega success. Yeah. And this is now the time that the East and West Coast hip-hop rivalry is gaining steam. Mm-hmm. His second studio album, Life After Death, was released in 97, just 16 days after his murder. Mm. So all of that success, one album. Yeah. Again, unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. So this album features Jay-Z, Lil' Kim, Mace, Bone Thugs and Harmony, DMC of Run DMC, Diddy, tons of Mm. people. Yeah. It was nominated for Best Rap Album, Best Rap Solo Performance for its single Hypnotize, and Best Rap Performance by a Duo or Group for its second single, Mo Money, Mo Problems, at the 40th Grammy Awards. Wow. In 2020, the album was ranked at number 179 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Mm-hmm. All Music's Jason Birchmere wrote, quote, it may have taken the notorious B.I.G. a few years to follow up his milestone debut, Ready to Die, with another album, 
but when he did return with Life After Death, he did so in a huge way. The ambitious album, intended as somewhat of a sequel to Ready to Die, picked up where its predecessor left off. Over the course of only two albums, he achieved every success imaginable, perhaps none greater than his unabashedly overreaching success. End quote. Wow. Two albums, but and only one was out. <laughs> right. And it's like what everybody dreams of. You know, there's that thing of like the sophomore slump. Mm-hmm. And he just completely blew that out of the water. Yeah. And Tupac had so many. And they mm-hmm. were relatively quick. It was kind of like one a year. But yeah. like uh, out of the four and into the fifth before he was mm-hmm. killed. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it took time to build that momentum where mm-hmm. uh, Biggie... It was instantaneous. Right, right. So the album went on to be certified diamond. Uh, number one, Billboard Top 200. It was the most successful album of 1997 for any genre. Mm-hmm. And after the album's release, Bad Boy Records continued to bring pop and gangster rap closer together. So the references to violence and drug dealing remained, as did the, like, you know, gangsta imagery mm-hmm. style, but the overall production style changed from the darker sound to a cleaner, sample-heavy, more mm-hmm. upbeat sound that was directly fashioned to the mainstream pop audience. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mo Money, Mo Problems shifted the genre into where we are now. Right, right. So it's hard to, like, quantify what that means in terms of ripple effects, but it, like, Mm -hmm. surrounds us in our daily life. Right, right. And Biggie is credited with initiating this transition. Uh, He was among the first mainstream rappers to produce albums with a calculated attempt to include both gritty and realistic narratives as well as radio-friendly production. Mm. Uh, Lots of artists were specifically influenced by songs on this album, Jay-Z borrowed lines and choruses for his music. Ice Cube did. Monica did. Tons of people, like big people in the moment, were directly sampling and using um, the songs from that album. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then looking back to Diddy in mid-97, he released his debut album, No Way Out, which features Biggie on five songs. Notably on the fifth single, Victory. Hmm. And, of course, the most prominent single from the record was I'll Be Missing You. Mm-hmm. Featuring Faith Evans, 112, it was Diddy, and it was dedicated to Biggie's memory. Yeah. And we might have said it in last week's episode, or maybe off pod, but this song was everywhere. Yeah, we haven't touched on it, but yes. I just, I remember like a specific part of my childhood. Anytime the radio turned on, this song was playing. Yeah, yeah, totally. So then at the 1998 Grammy Awards, Life After Death and its first two singles received nominations in the rap category. Did he actually won for album for No Way Out and for song for I'll Be Missing You? Mm-hmm. Before his death, Biggie was even starting to put together a hip-hop supergroup called The Commission, which would have consisted of himself, Jay-Z, Diddy, 
Unfortunately, it didn't come to fruition, but it's another example of what might have been if not for his murder. Mm -hmm. So then in 99, his third album, Born Again, was released posthumously. It was made up of, similarly to Tupac's, like previously unreleased material mixed with new guest appearances, including many artists that he did collaborate with, as well as artists he had never collaborated with. It went on to sell over 2 million copies, debuted at number one on the top 200, so big success. Uh, hmm. His voice was also heard on two hit songs from Ashanti in 2002. Mm-hmm. So most recently, in 2017, his former wife, Faith Evans, released The King and I, which was a duet album uh, of herself and Biggie. Mm-hmm. His lyrics have been sampled and quoted by Jay-Z, 50 Cent, Alicia Keys, Fat Joe, Nelly, Ja Rule, Eminem, Lil Wayne, The Game, Usher. And Mm -hmm. it's more than just music. Like, when he was alive, Biggie had begun to promote a clothing line called Brooklyn Mint, which was supposed to produce Mm -hmm. plus-size clothing. In 2004, his managers, Mark Pitts and Wayne Barrow, launched the clothing line with help from Jay-Z, selling t-shirts with images of Biggie on them. Mm. And some of the proceeds from that go to the Christopher Wallace Foundation and to Jay-Z's Sean Carter Scholarships Foundation. Oh, interesting. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a large portrait of Biggie that's prominently shown all throughout the Netflix show Luke Cage. Uh And it was a stylistic and sort of storytelling device that showed him as the muse for one of the main characters, Cottonmouth. Oh, wow. Uh, looking at movies in 2018, the movie of the movie City of Lies chronicled LAPD detective Russell Poole's investigation into Biggie's murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's based on a book by journalist Randall Sullivan that was called Labyrinth, but like L and A are capitalized. So it's like mm-hmm. LA Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I was like, there's no way the listener is going to be able to know that. <laughs> but yeah, that it goes deep into the corruption, cover-ups, and everything around Biggie's case. Yeah. Biggie's mom believed that Poole was honest and wasn't given the chance to do his job. And so she supported the movie and even appeared in it herself. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. In 2009, his biopic, Notorious, was released. That one also featured Tupac, but in this one, Jamal Woolard played Biggie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was produced by Diddy and Biggie's former managers, as well as his mom. His mom produced Notorious as well. Oh, cool. And, you know, so much like Tupac, Biggie was a megastar, and that star certainly could have continued its rise. I, I don't know. It's just fascinating to imagine what he could have done and what he would have created and for both of them. Right. They forever changed pop culture. They yeah. changed the music we listen to today. Right. And yeah, just two tragic endings to two unbelievably successful careers. And so talented. And, you know, we talk a lot about racism and, you know, it's just so thick in a lot of the cases that we cover and here it's just everywhere you look I mean every 
cell of the of the DNA of this case is just covered in racism. And I think their legacies are are tainted by that because of the way that their lives were portrayed, the way that their their deaths were covered mm-hmm. um, and really minimized and trivialized in a way that's really tragic. Um, and I mean, they weren't perfect. Oh, you know, they yes. committed crimes and, you know, there's so much that we could go into there. And they were hugely talented, hugely. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think there's a truism about, you know, for a black person, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. So when you think about that, like to think how talented they had to have been to to make it to that level in spite of all of the racism that they faced. Well, and to the point where, like, a sitting Supreme Court justice is, like, taking on your moniker. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it wasn't her choice or anything, but, like, notorious RGB, mm-hmm. when that book was written about her with that title, and then people, like, use the imagery of Biggie from that magazine cover with the crown, and it's, like, it's everywhere, <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, it's just seeped in. Again, it's one of those that's gone so far to that level that, you know, if you don't know, it's very easy to be a young person or someone who's just not that plugged into this kind of subculture that you know about it and you don't even know where it comes from. Yeah, and I I feel like it was the movie Super Bad or something and, like, the kids singing Big Papa. (laughs) It's just, Mm -hmm. like... It's everywhere. And then when I think about, like, Tupac and, like, the California, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, I know. Iconic. Yeah, iconic. That's really the only word. And I didn't realize until we started doing this and digging into it, that picture, that iconic picture, that was taken only a couple of days before his murder. And I read that, you know, you talked about the auction of Tupac's little folio I mean, little, like, Yeah, it was a, a small booklet. <laughs> yeah. The crown that he wore for that photo shoot, it was actually a, a cheap plastic crown. It sold at auction for over half a million dollars. Oh, my God. Probably some horrific <laughs> asshole on that. Probably some venture capitalist. And I think of Martin wad. Screlly owning the... Uh... <laughs> oh, whose album yes. was that? Uh, a Wu-Tang yes, Clan? Yes, yes. Clan? I can't say their name <laughs> at all. Wu-Tang Clan. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but the thing, the other thing that I really didn't know is, you know, so I think there's some kind of um, sizeism in this too. You know, he was big. He fit kind of a cultural perception of like, the quote scary black guy he was 6'3 really physically imposing and I thought he was much older than he was just because of kind of you know Mm -hmm. his poses and pictures would be like all serious and where Tupac he was you know kind of on the more petite side he had those like baby brown eyes and like the eyelashes for days and and all and he just had this more like you know angelic kind of appearance but to see 
other pictures of Biggie. Like once I went digging and looking for different sources and things and finding outtakes from some of his shoots. So, you know, his record company is the one who's picking and putting Mm -hmm. out and shaping his image. And then seeing some of the outtakes where he just looks like a goofy 23 year old Uh guy acting goofy. And it really strikes you like he was just a kid, you know? And I mean, so was Tupac, but I think that's kind of easier to wrap your brain around. Uh It's like, 25, 26, and he had this kind of baby face where Biggie, I think, just was, like, imposing and just his persona. And I think I I believed it, you know? It was, like, gangster rapper, makes scary faces and poses all grim-looking, and but he's just a kid. And, you know, from what I could gather from the bits and pieces that I pulled together, you know, just kind of like a goofy, fun-loving kid mm-hmm. who also happened to be super smart and like really talented <laughs> it's also interesting how it was him that was bringing the fun too, like switching mm-hmm. the genre and it's like i wonder if his image would have shifted with it yeah i mean it's so hard because again he's not here to to say his side of the story i saw some stuff that put that down to diddy that was like uh. diddy's direction And he actually chafed against it. And Tupac was the one to be like, trust him. Like, has he been good to you so far? Yes. Okay, do this. And like, appeal to the suburban, you know, black guys. But I mean, who the fuck knows? You know, I could see Diddy like wanting to put that story out there that he was kind of the brilliant mastermind. I I don't think that's something that can probably really be known totally. Interesting, nonetheless. Yeah. So fascinating. And so many ripples, like tsunamis of pop culture. Yeah. There's no way to quantify it. It, It's interesting, something like this, especially so current, where it's like, it's not so much that there's 50 movies about them, and Mm -hmm. but it's that (laughs) the music we hear is different because of them yes and and like lots of genres not just hip-hop and rap and kind of like selena i do believe their stars would have continued but their murders also cemented in like there was Mm -hmm. no going back at that point right right for sure tupac would have had a huge career in hollywood he just really seemed a natural performer mm-hmm. um especially in, in the way. acting as well yeah and you know i think you know biggie i think was one of the prototypical moguls in terms of wanting to diversify you know he seemed very motivated by not only his talent and creativity but wanting to build an empire he seemed very intentional about that from a pretty young age i feel like jay-z is a pretty decent comparison point Mm-hmm. Like the word Agreed. mogul fits so perfectly, and I, I, I think that's how Biggie would have gone as well. Well, and I mean to the point that I almost wonder, could Jay Z have even become Jay Z if Biggie were still around? That would be so fast, especially since he was building that group with Jay Z. Like, yeah, who knows what we could have gotten? Yeah, yeah. And it's just like Biggie just kind of 
took up all the air in a room. You know, he was the star. So could Jay could Jay Z have really kind of asserted himself in that same kind of way? And who would with Beyonce Biggie be? kind of occupying? Right. I mean, it's just it's fascinating. So I mean, that just is like the tip of the iceberg in terms of his presence had an impact, his absence had an impact, and that kind of like butterfly effect, you know, that you can never know. Yeah. I'm so glad we did these. I know, me too. And it just, you know, I keep realizing how many cases that I think I know, and there's so much to them that I don't know. Oh my gosh, yes. So I'm definitely going to go back and re-listen to a lot of their music because I just know the hits. There's a lot that I don't know. But also, I mean, they have some bangers Mm -hmm. that I haven't heard in a really long time. (laughs) It's a whole vibe. I'm just going to all night, piggy, 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 (laughs) can't you see? (laughs) That was my vibe in the Biggie era. I think I unfortunately got hooked with Big Papa because of, I think, I do think it was a movie super bad <laughs> that, like, mm-hmm. revitalized it. <laughs> and I was just like... Well, you're so much Aw. younger, so, I mean, I can't imagine that your parents were letting you listen to gangster rap when you were, like, eight. Uh, I could only listen to occasional bits of radio, church music, and Disney songs. <laughs> I was specifically (laughs) not allowed to listen to most music. Yeah, yeah. And in in their kind of heyday, you know, I mean, I'm just like suburban white girl, originally from the Midwest. So I was very much of like the Rob bass. That was my flavor of, you know, rap and R&B. So I didn't cut quite as hardcore at that time as the gangster rappers. Yeah, it's so silly but i guess it's hard to say because i was so young but like the east coast west coast feud like means nothing to a boy in mississippi (laughs) yeah yeah right totally (laughs) i was i was same it's just like big city rappers like urban rappers that's same la new york just you know yeah it's like why do they care about what coast they're on (laughs) well i mean particularly because Tupac spent most of his life on the East Coast. He wasn't a West Coast native. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I guess it's just the same. But Suge Knight. Oh. I think it's the same That's an episode. Uh, kind of rivalry as like Mississippi versus Alabama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, again, like back to our original thesis there is a part of the human psyche that is reptilian and that part includes the part that's all tribal, you know? Oh, one last thought. I, th- I thought it in, I don't know if it was your part or my part. Oh, it was yours with Tupac and loving Shakespeare and being able to see the same themes. And I felt yeah. like that was also an interesting continuation as how like, so many people of different races, different backgrounds could still appreciate and get the themes in Tupac's music as well. Like, I I don't have it, like, fully formed in my brain, but it's, like, the power of art and storytelling can transcend individual story details. For and sure. I felt like, just like Shakespeare, Tupac has done that as well. <laughs> right. 
Well, and Shakespeare now is Shakespeare, but at the time he was writing stories for the hoi polloi. He was not, you know, I mean, he did have audience with the queen at times, but he was really writing his material for the common person, just like rappers. Mm -hmm. If Shakespeare actually wrote them. (laughs) Well, yes, yes. Okay, that is a whole other, that's a whole other podcast almost, which I would be down to do, (laughs) by the way, because I'm kind of into that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, So good. Super fascinating, I know. Every time I think like, well, you've said it before. How are we, what are we going to do next? How are we going to, are we going to run out of ideas? But every time it's just interesting. And we hope listeners that you feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, you know, just like 50% of how fascinating we find it all. <laughs> uh, and as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Toodaloo. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 